Do you like the work we're doing here at It's All Journalism? For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us continue the conversation about good journalism. Show your support by donating to our Patreon campaign. Go to itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page to donate. And I think in terms of storytelling, it poses a great challenge. You know, you have to decide clip by clip from clip two to clip three, where do you think the audience is going to be looking? You don't want to lose your audience mid mid piece because they were looking at a bird in the upper right hand corner of your sphere and your next scene is dead center or, or, or dead left. So it's uh, it's a challenge, but I would say uh, it's one of the hardest things I've ever done in storytelling, but it's definitely one of the most rewarding. Welcome to It's All Journalism. My name is Michael O'Connell here in studio again with the It's All Journalism podcast and uh, the podcast about digital media innovators. And we have an innovator in the studio with us today. Also in the studio, who is also an innovator in her own right, is Nicole <laughs> Grisco, our producer. Hey, Nicole. How's hey, it going? Mike. Hey, good. I'm glad you're here. Uh, that was almost, our haze were almost... Um, uh, <laughs> that Saturday Night Live skit. <laughs> what was that? Hey. Oh. Oh. Uh, anyway, the, anyway. the sweaty yeah. balls. But we can <laughs> cut that part out. Okay. Um, so I'm really excited about our podcast today. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of photography. Um, we've done a few podcasts about um, immersive journalism, uh, photo, video, uh, 360 uh, type of thing. But today we've got Steve Johnson, uh, who's, who's a 360 storyteller, uh, shoots video and photography. He's been showing us a few of his toys right now, but uh, welcome, Steve. Let's start with that. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Okay, great. Well, first of all, um, tell me about your journalism journey. Journey. How did you get to this point? Oh, man. Uh, lots of bribery and stealing. That's definitely how I got to this point. Now. That's the career path of <laughs> professionals. Take note, kids. Um, no, I um, I started out, uh, fortunately, in high school. I, I was a sports photographer in high school. I was on the sidelines of all this, the games, and... Uh, knew the parents, so I sold the prints of the photos to the parents in high school, and I knew the person at the ticket counter, so she would hand a flyer to every parent, and I was using a, a Mac Mini and Apple's iWeb and making a website and just dragging and dropping hundreds of photos online, and they would all mail me these order forms with a check of a you know 4x6, 5x7, 8x10, and I probably broke a bunch of terms of service and went to CVS as a kid and printed them out and mailed them right back to them, so... Um, I always joke that that's my my start, and I was I was very fortunate. I ran into a lot of photographers from the Orlando Sentinel. I grew up in Orlando, Florida, while doing that, and uh, they, you know, took a chance and ended up hiring me as an intern and then a freelancer. And it was fortunate I did mostly sports for them and lucked out. And uh, ESPN had contacted me while I was seventeen, still in high school, and I started freelancing for ESPN. I don't even think they knew my contracts weren't valid, but I had a deep voice when they called, so they're probably like, "Yeah, sure, he knows what he's doing," and. Um, it kind of really evolved from there. I went to the University of Florida, got a degree in journalism. I had freelanced for a number of folks, but probably the big, I'd say like the big kind of eye-opening moment was uh, I was freelancing for the Miami Herald in 2010, uh, or interning at the Miami Herald, and the oil spill had happened. And it was the same time that Haiti was in a mess. So the whole Herald staff was down in Haiti, and they needed someone who could cover the oil spill. And I was one of the few folks on staff that could write articles, shoot video, and shoot stills because the DSLRs had just been able to shoot video back then. And uh, I just lived in the Gulf of Mexico for two months and realized kind of the power of digital storytelling and, and feeding back, you know, information to your editors throughout the day. And, and it really was a, a great experience. And 
that led to me teaching at the University of Florida as soon as I graduated um, and continuing to freelance for folks all over the place. And about a year ago, I decided after getting my master's at Florida and teaching there for about three and a half years that I wanted to a little bit of a change. And some groups up here in D.C. had contacted me about doing some documentaries and here I am, about 13 months in D.C., and now here with you. Yeah, it was a logical progression. It was. I, I like the fact that early on that you, you wedded uh, photography with commerce, uh, that that uh, that you recognized that, hey, this is something that's good and powerful and that people will mm-hmm. like and they may actually pay for, yep. which is not a bad thing. I'm not saying, you no, know, I have a, I, I speak at a bunch of J schools. Uh, actually, I'm excited. I'm going to Chapel Hill next week uh, yes. and then University of Florida week after do some workshops in 360. And uh, more important than a workshop on how to shoot 360 is how to run a business. And I got my master's in entrepreneurship at the University of Florida while, while teaching there. And, you know, as much as financial accounting made me want to go jump off a bridge, it was the, the best course I could have ever taken. I mean, you know, knowing how to leverage your resources, you know, when to spend money, when you can't spend money, you know, running the business side of, of journalism, I think. My experience in working in newsrooms and also as a freelancer, I think you get that more as a freelancer because you're always more cognizant of your own budget. And I think journalism as a whole needs to be very aware of how much their stories are worth and what can you charge for them and what's it worth to your audience. Yeah, I think that's usually important. I think especially now where uh, journalists need to be much more you know, in your face, they need to be able to go off and maybe not have a newspaper fund them, but actually... Mm-hmm figure out a way to fund themselves, doing different types of projects, you know, going online, starting their own uh, well, yeah, website. And even micro grants and, and nonprofits and foundations. You know, a lot of the work I do up here in D.C. is with nonprofits and foundations. I kind of straddle this, you know, very delicate ethical line of making sure that I'm still true to my journalism form. Um, but if the Kellogg Foundation calls and says we need, you know, some work done on health disparities in Native American populations, I'm going to go attack that story just like I would, you know, for The New York Times. But... I need to manage a budget and I need to manage, you know, my my exact time uh, before, during and after. So it's definitely the, the business side of journalism, I think, is is critically important. And, you know, I people ask all the time. They, they look at my Instagram and they see me traveling all over the world and they go, oh, my gosh, you're, you've got the greatest job in the world. And I said, yeah, I need to start Instagramming the like hours and hours of spreadsheets and paperwork and quarterly tax filings. I usually tell folks running your own business, especially in storytelling, is like waking up in the morning and getting punched in the stomach. And then going to bed every night knowing you're going to get punched in the stomach the next morning. So it's beautiful. It's fun. But, man, it's a lot of work. It is a lot of work. Well, let's, let's talk about let's talk about your company. It's seaboundless.com. Uh, yep. Boundless is your your brand. Yeah. And, and what is it to, that you're doing with that? So I moved to D.C. about 13 months ago. I'd always been my personal uh, Instagram and journal and uh Twitter handle is always Drono to Go, a friend of mine from People Magazine. I, I wrote on Facebook like five years ago. I said, what's your my Twitter handle? My name's Steve Johnson. I'm a disease where your skin falls off. I'm a running back in the NFL like Steve Johnson. I, I once created I've a known two Steve Johnsons in my life. You're I, the third I once one. created a card with an arrest warrant for a Steve Johnson, which goes over really well with the family, might I add. And uh, so I came up with Drono to Go like five years ago as a mobile journalist. I wanted to evolve that once I came to D.C., but I had this pet peeve against people starting businesses with a logo and a mission statement. And I said, you know what? People are hiring me up here because of my photos, not because of my name or, or what it's called. So I spent a year working with all these news orgs and nonprofits and foundations and spent the summer bashing my head against a wall. And a, and a good friend of mine, a colleague at the University of Florida, Ann Cristiano, came up with the name Boundless. And she said, well, it describes your energy. It describes 360. It describes kind of what you do. And what I do is kind of a mix of 
producing stories, consulting uh, with news organizations, with foundations of how to tell their story, and then also workshops. I do a lot of teaching. Um, I'm probably at least two months out of my year is spent at universities. You know, this year I've probably done six 360 workshops, anywhere from two to five days long. So yeah, it's kind of this intersection of a place where storytellers, be it at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation or the Kellogg Foundation, or educators, be it at the University of Florida or the University of Maryland, can kind of come see a bit of the behind the scenes about the work that I do. I publish everything open source. So even back in February when we did the first 360 piece, we brought a climate scientist in Iceland and I, you know, we did this first piece that never been done before, this interview on camera. I, w- I was talking to a colleague of mine and I said, I think I just did something that no one else has done in journalism, but I don't know. Should I keep it a secret? Should I train people on it? And to their credit, just the best advice was open source it. Open source it, own it, and be the expert. Because let's be honest, I figured it out. I didn't cure cancer. Someone else is going to figure it out too. So the company was really created around this idea of helping people tell better stories. And if they hire me to tell that story, great. If they don't, I'm totally happy with that too. But I I try to focus on social good storytelling. So. Okay, well, let's get into the technical end of it. Tell, well, even before we actually get into the technical end, let's, let's talk about 360 storytelling. What does that mean for you? So 360 storytelling is, it seems really easy at first. It's six GoPros, right? They're all on automatic modes. Maybe you do ProTune and you set a couple of settings, but it's a button. And uh, I love when other photographers, I'm, I'm hanging out and they say, oh, that's so easy. You just kind of go to a cool place and hit record. <laughs> and I said, yeah, borrow my ring for a day. And then they come back and the footage is terrible. It's not stitched properly because it's too close to a subject or it's just boring. You know, 360 storytelling can be 360 watching paint dry on a wall. So I feel like this medium, you have to work so much harder deciding not only where you're going to put the camera, but what's interesting for your audience. You know, in the entire history of storytelling, since cave paintings, you know, 18,000 BC, we've controlled the perspective. How big is that buffalo next to that stick figure man that we killed that we put on that wall? Or what lens do we shoot the protest in Charlotte with? You know, there's obviously going to be a difference if we shoot with a 70 to 200 or a 14 millimeter wide and we get real close to someone. So what's both challenging and my favorite part about 360 is your audience gets to control the perspective. And in a way, it feels very something I teach against in photography, which is very pedestrian. You know, I always tell my students uh, that I work with, don't ever be a pedestrian photographer, which is just stand up and take a picture. You want to get low, you want to get high, you want to change your perspective. And with 360, you almost want to encourage that pedestrianness of your shots because you want someone to feel like they're just there experiencing it with you. And I think there's a level of authenticity to that because... You know, you can take a, an 85 millimeter prime and do an interview and it's going to look gorgeous and the background is going to be out of focus. You can see a bead of sweat going down someone's face. And those details are really important in storytelling. But your audience almost equates that to watching a movie. The DSLRs have gotten so good and the, the journalism has gotten so good in storytelling. It's almost like watching a, a Steven Spielberg film. And the cool part about 360 is it kind of takes away that level of professionalism in a way that that finesse that we see with dslrs and it's crisp great quality video but you're just there you get to look around you get to experience it on your own so i think the audiences definitely like to be able to control that experience and i think in terms of storytelling it poses a great challenge you know you have to decide clip by clip from clip two to clip three where do you think the audience is going to be looking you don't want to lose your audience mid piece because they were looking at a bird in the upper right hand corner of your sphere and your next scene is dead center or or, or dead left. So it's a challenge, but I would say 
one of the hardest things I've ever done in storytelling, but it's definitely one of the most rewarding. Yeah, it's interesting because when I started looking through your stuff, you know, because part of what I have to do uh, when I, before an interview is, you know, read through, you know, your biography and sort of look at your samples and try to get an idea. And, you know, I've, I've been through all the journalism courses where they tell you how to, you know, compose a, a shot and, you know, as you said, high and low and, you know, give different perspectives. Mm -hmm. You're actually in control of the experience for the, the user. And so when I was first looking at the 360, I was like, well, this is really kind of a, a different philosophy altogether in that, you know, you know, like you, you mentioned the Spielberg movie, somebody's not directing it. You, you, you need to create a, a space for the viewer, the user, the reader to experience it themselves and control of the experience themselves, which is a challenge, I imagine, from a storytelling point of view, because you really... I mean, the whole idea of storytelling is you tell a story, that you identify the important pieces mm -hmm. of information and you assemble them, and then you you create that experience for the um, the reader or the listener. And so now you know you're you're presenting the whole vast vista, and so you know how do you incorporate that into a story? So actually, one of my guides for this is I've been re-listening to a ton of great radio journalism. And the reason why is radio journalism, you don't control the perspective as a way. You obviously speak what you would be seeing, but the natural sound is always so good. And as an audience member, you're always imagining what you see. I always give the example, like before I saw the Harry Potter movies, I had my own idea of what Hogwarts looked like and what Quidditch looked like. And then it was ruined because now I'll never remember what I thought when I was right. reading the book as a kid. And um, so I've been listening to a lot of radio stories and trying to decide, well, how does an audience, you know, they don't build their own narrative per se, but they also imagine the story themselves. And so when I'm creating a 360 piece, I always try to think of, A, of course, is this going to help tell the story? And we build a narrative arc, but instead of directly showing every little bit or telling every little bit, we almost, I, I consider it you're guiding your audience through a story. So obviously I still control where the camera is going to be and what it looks at and where it's going to be in the overall piece because the video aspect of 360 storytelling is still a set length. You know, it's I want it to be three minutes long. It's going to be three minutes long. And in that case, I either use voiceovers or I use folks on camera um, or folks related to the story to help bring the audience through a piece. And sometimes it might be as blatant as, you know, as you look to your right, you can see Beggar Ineson, the climatologist from the Met Office, getting ready to go into a glacier. Or as you look down, you can see the flooded out floor of an auto shop in Rosenberg, Texas, after the historic floodings this year. So I think a lot of what we do in 360 is, yes, the audience controls the perspective and they can tell their own story. But, you know, I almost think of it as a tour guide through a story. And um, I think it's something that radio has done so well since, you know, its, its inception in terms of storytelling that I think we almost lost in video storytelling. Um, video storytelling has become so compact, so efficient, so analytics driven that you now have, you know, the infographic style videos that just cram as much information as possible, or you have your standard A-roll, B-roll, A-roll, B-roll video. You can still do A-roll, B-roll, and you can still do infographics in 360. Um, but I think what 360 is allowing is it's allowing us to slow down the pace of storytelling. Traditionally, when I would do a video, uh, a standard video, like a three-minute video, you might have 40 or 50 clips that you end up cramming in there because 
your audience gets bored, you're cutting your, your clips real quick. Um, in 360, I might have a three-minute piece that only has five scenes. Or in the case of Facebook, they released an 11-minute video in Grand Central Station that had one scene. And they use the audio to guide you through. So I think there's a lot of potential in terms of breaking that mold of how we see storytelling in visual form with 360 because we can change the format of the narrative. There's still going to be a narrative arc. There's still going to be, you know, an interesting hook that's going to give people a reason to watch. But you want to allow them to discover that on their own because they're going to remember that much more if they discovered on their own than if it was just kind of force fed to them in a quick infographic video i mean can you remember the last three infographic videos you watched on facebook uh no you know and they're great aj plus business insider the post does it everyone does but can you remember the last three no can you remember the last 360 piece you watched or the last documentary you watched you know a slower form of storytelling they totally can they're much more impactful and i think in 360 and i'm excited because there's a lot of universities doing some great studies on this you can now start to say, well, if we form our own memories of that piece, like if you watch the same piece right. that I watch, I'm going to see something different than you. You're going to feel more connected to that story and you're going to feel like you own a little bit more of that story. Yeah, the the immersive you know aspect of it, you know, we talked before the microphones went on. We both had the experience of uh, putting on... Swearing the, violently before the microphones swearing, went on too. Just yeah, yeah, yeah. Terrible. Um, but uh, of the the Oculus gear, sort of both, we both, I think, at the same ONA, uh, we, we had a chance to put that on. My first experience of it was, wow, this is, I, I can see this now. The sense of place that you give to uh, your reader is really empowering. But then also you, you, you allow their you know, possibilities for interactivity where you, you drop in other graphics and, and things mm -hmm. where you, you can sort of introduce a narrative structure to, to what's going on so that you're, it's not just them. I'm like the worst person for video games, like, like immersive video games. Uh, <laughs> the games that I, that I like to play or that I used to like to play, and I, I don't play anymore, but were you would go into these landscapes that the, the game people had created for whatever story they were particularly telling. Yeah, I'd do the whatever they wanted me to do, but I've spent an inordinate amount of time just exploring the universe, just walking around yeah. it. So, so when you talk about 360 video, and that, that's that's my concern is like you know, like you can be telling me a story, but I'm going to be oh, I'm going to look over here and I'm going to look at this mountain and everything. As far as the impact of it goes, you know, looking at your stuff uh, last night, that I'm still replaying in my head the the image of El Cap being at the top of El Capitan. Yeah. And looking down and looking up, three thousand foot drop. Yeah, three thousand. I need to I need to show you guys the behind the scenes shot of that, by the way. So uh, I was with two of my really good buddies, Ryan Jones and Will England, both photographers back in Florida. And I said, "Well, hold your belt." I, you, it, <laughs> it, it was exactly that. So Will yeah. is Army Ranger Will, and he's great. And he's uh, I'll do it. He's getting his master's in sociology. He's gonna be. I mean, he'll be the next JFK. He's brilliant. But I said, well, and he's always got his, his kit. So he said, he's got his nylon rope, as you were taught. So Because like, you never know. You never know. And so we wrapped it. And we've got one of the monopods right here in the studio, which we'll, we'll share the photo. We wrapped a bit around the base of the monopod. We wrapped a part through my belt loop. And then he went further back. And then That's a over, lot of faith well. in a what belt loop. Over the railing, there's this little slit in a railing from the wall to the top of the railing. And I put the rig through. And I knew that, all right, the little feet here, if it falls, it'll wedge itself down. So I wedged this thing through, and this was with an older one of these that was heavier too. So, and I'm sitting there, and it looks like I'm praying to the gods. I'm just in the edge of this, you know, Yosemite Valley, leaning over, and I'm ducking down behind the wall because you, you obviously don't want to be in the frame. 
and I just look so <laughs> worried. And I am not a bodybuilder by any strength, but after four minutes of holding that, your hands are just shaking. But it created a great clip. You're literally hanging well, over the edge really of, important at the end of, of the story. Yosemite Valley, and if you look down, it's a you know a couple thousand foot drop, and uh, you can see Half Dome, you can see the whole valley, and it's it's just absolutely beautiful. And you know it's those moments that you just go like, wow, this is totally worth it. You know we love wide pictures, we love panoramic landscapes, and the fact that we can do that and let the audience kind of experience and look around just made it so worth it. But but thanks to Ryan and Will for not letting me perish on that that shoot now a lot of journalists will, will sort of poo-poo this um and it's because they're like well you know you can there's only certain types of stories you can tell with this you know i'm i'm going out and covering the city council meeting i'm not going to use a 360 camera for yeah. 360 so well, man when hillary was answering those questions about email scandals on capitol hill i'd love to see that in 360 yeah that's I think, true i think Were you it, there no, no okay no. for a second that was a Somebody was twelve in. plus hour marathon. Okay, yeah. there was somebody in our office. It was, a, was it was it was it email or Benghazi? I forget which one that that everyone's making. It was the one that was well, they were all made a spectacle of. They but were tied together. It probably yeah. <laughs> they might but have. I would have loved to put one of these in the room, and I want to see the reaction of X Y Z congressman as someone else is asking, and then I want to see the aides behind Hillary that are scribbling notes as fast as possible. And then I just want to be able to look at her in any given point, and I want to see her facial expression while the questions are being asked because. I think it allows the audience to not only just experience and be there. And the gimmicky part is, yes, you you can be there. And that's that's the first step to 360. But I think we can start to identify stories where this does a better job than regular video, than photographs, or than, than audio storytelling. I think it, it can bring those together. So I agree with the journalists in a sense that, yes, I wouldn't go to the regular city council meeting and film the entire thing in 360. But my argument to that is, you wouldn't do a live radio broadcast from the city council meeting. You wouldn't do a live video broadcast from the city council meeting. We've all watched C-SPAN. Sometimes it's not that interesting. <laughs> yeah, we have it on all day mm -hmm. here. Yeah. And, and occasionally, actually, the, the thing that we like is when the congressman, they put up, like, large charts, charts mm. and pictures, like giant blown-up pictures of a piece of pizza. Whoever pizza has that was my the, the Kinko's contract on yeah. Cap Hill is just rolling in it. I mean, yeah. No. That's a job I really want. That's yeah. Well, I I don't know if that's a job I want to do, but certainly the the, the contract would be it would be kind of great. So what what stories then does 360 do better? Yeah, than so, um so than others. I've kind of broken down 360 storytelling into two genres right now. Um, one is what we've seen a lot of, which which I do too, which is it's phenomenal ancillary storytelling. So if we're gonna do a feature on a thing, we're gonna include this with this large feature story. An example is um. A U.S. News and World just published this today, actually. These brilliant students from uh, Northwestern, I, I helped them in a session training on 360. They did a piece on energy security in the Pacific Northwest. And it's about physical threats, you know, people shooting at transformers, natural disasters because it's on a giant fault line, and cyber threats. And, you know, the Pacific Northwest is this lovely place where they're threatened by all three simultaneously. And we know that a story on cyber threats in 360 is probably not the most interesting so they wrote these phenomenal articles. We did still pictures with it. And then we chose to do different types for each one of those angles of the story. So for the cyber threat, we went into a testing facility that basically is an exact replica of the energy plant that they have. And we interviewed someone from there and said, oh, well, here's the testing equipment, how we do this. Here are the servers. Here. So there's that ancillary extra content that goes with it. It's not the full driving narrative force, but it's pieces that allow that to go in. And I think that right now is the best way to get our audience used to 360 storytelling. It's kind of that that baby step into a virtual or immersive storytelling type. 
And then I think the other side is where you decide stories based off of the story if it should be in 360. A lot of those are experience-based. You know, come airboat with us on the Everglades in Florida or come, you know, explore ice caves in Iceland. But you almost can go even deeper than that with the full 360 piece and say, okay, how can I build a narrative with an active voice that's talking with my audience that guides them through a piece, telling them to look places, tell them to, to experience? You must have to prime your interview subjects a little bit differently, too. Which and is like a radio exactly type thing. Exactly. Interview. And those types of stories are that I get really excited about. Because if we can now take an immersive story and it starts to invoke behavioral change, that excites me. You know, the old newspaper saying has always been, we inform, you decide, right? If we can inform folks where they can decide not only to whether form an opinion or just, you know, have knowledge of a topic, but if we can start to see behavioral change because of immersive storytelling. So in other words, can I bring you to a refugee camp, you know, in Lebanon, which now is over one third population of Syrian refugees? Can I bring you to a school in Lebanon as kids are learning on iPads how to speak three languages because... There's some amazing, amazing programs out there. Will you start to act differently around Muslim Americans? That's what I'm really excited about in in this type of storytelling, which, you know, uh, what's the Spider-Man saying with great power comes, comes great, great responsibility. responsibility. You know, I think this could also be used in a bad way. You know, yeah. you can use this to convince people that, you know, coal is the future or that, you know, that that climate change isn't real. And. So I think we're we're in an interesting kind of no man's land right now in storytelling. But I think if you can identify a story that you really think your audience should be there with you. As journalists, we're some of the most fortunate people in the world. We get to go to the ends of the earth. We get to meet folks that, you know, some other people never get to have a chance to have a one-on-one -on -one chat with, you know, even a congressman. How can we help bring our audience with us and help them experience what we experience. Because we obviously have a passion to do this. We love storytelling. And we know we all know of journalists that have devoted their life to a specific topic, whether that's refugees, whether that's climate, whether that's social injustice, racial injustice. And we all get bit with that bug. We want to have our audiences get bit with that same bug. And I think immersive storytelling is, at least in this form of 360, is just the, the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, and if you look at, at journalism and, and the history of it and the – you know, at the moments when new technology came in, I mean, radio was hugely you know, impactful for large sections sections of the United States, where there was no, you know, you know, national exchange of information. So suddenly, you could hear people in New York and in Los Angeles and in other parts of the country talking to you, and then you know, through through you know. Uh, it, the photography has a rich history of, you know, you know, battlefield photography. We think of, we think of, uh, you know, the impact that television had on the civil rights movement and, and the Vietnam War. And the Vietnam War. Seeing those images in your home changed public opinion. Yep. And so here we are in another well, Nixon Kennedy debate changed Nixon, public opinion. Yeah, <laughs> it's it, you know that you're putting people in that place. Mm -hmm. And, and giving them a different experience. So as you say, allow them to, to draw their own conclusions. Yeah, because I think as journalists, we obviously make thousands upon thousands of editorial decisions when we're working on a story. It's ones that we don't even realize. You know, the big ones are, do we, do we interview this person or we not? Do we use this soundbite or do we use this clip or not? But I think the ones that really kind of excite me in, in storytelling, especially with immersive, is, for example, sexual assault on college campuses is a huge one massive issue across the United States and the world. But when we do a piece on that, we might get a moderator. We might get someone who survived this. We might get an advocate for this. We might get a member of 
uh, the student body president or the president of the Greek community, you know, these these different players in this field. And we might sit them down and we'll set up probably four cameras, right? Wide yeah. shot, interview <laughs> shot, tight shot, chase shot. And if someone sniffles or cries or that sort of thing, of course, we're going to zoom in on it. And, and that's great. But let's just say hypothetically this room, we're all having this discussion right now. Mm-hmm. And Nicole and I are chatting about the issues on college campuses. But you have a reaction to that. Right. That I, and it's not interesting enough for me to cut a shot to you. But because we have a 360 camera in the room, an audience might hear what Nicole and I are saying, but be more tied to you because they just might relate to you better. Whether that's, you know, they, and, and, you know, these are the biases that our audiences have that we try to get rid of as journalists. So if we can now have person A and person B talking, but person C can still be watched, an audience is going to start to really connect to a story or even spend more time listening to that story because they might not like Nicole. They might not like me. They might hear us, but they might look to something else in that piece. And I think if we can start to design our stories around not only experiences, but allowing the technology to give our audiences something more than what we decide to show them, trust for journalists is at an all-time low right now. This is the most transparent box we could ever imagine when it comes to storytelling. You can see where I'm standing. You can see where it is. I'm not tricking you with any photo magic trick here. <laughs> it's it's pretty much as transparent uh, as you can get. Well, I, I can't tell you how many um, how many uh, paranoid al- alarms went off in my head as you say that, because it's the all-seeing eye, mm-hmm. and it's how you react to something. You know, the, the the technology having that ability. Not that I want to take it down this scary scary route, but I mean. You know, we know that the the camera is is an incredibly powerful tool Mm -hmm. um, for good and evil. Uh, Fact. Fact. Oh, I mean, there's a whole industry in security that's going to be popped up on this. You know, if you have a 360 security camera in a gas station, imagine what you can now see that you never got with the single perspective. And and there's you can go down the really scary route is what happens when. You know, uh, National Guard or police have this in the middle of a protest, and now they can see in every direction. They can and, target and they everybody. Can, so there's a lot of, you know, I would never want the fear of a technology to get into the way of the adaptation or the the use for good of a technology. And right. It's the same thing with the First Amendment. You fight the First Amendment with the First Amendment. And if you don't like the way police are using it to surveil people, you surveil police with it. It's what we've done with body cams. It's what we've done with iPhones. It's what we've done with eye reporting, as we've seen in Charlotte and Ferguson and Tulsa. Um so, yeah, there's a lot of scary uses of it. Um, but at the end of the day, I look at this and and as it becomes more of a consumer product, you know, not only can you and I go to a Taylor Swift concert and sing along and you can see Taylor Swift. I, and you I can don't see think us. it's going to happen. But, uh, go ahead. <laughs> but you and I are, can now go to a protest and a journalist can say, well, here's exactly how I got my story and, um, and exactly where I was, because you look at an election cycle that we've had this year that facts don't matter anymore. And seeing is the only form of believing. And even when you see it, most people don't believe it. Well, if you can now look in every direction, you can see exactly where the photographer was standing and exactly where the journalist was standing. It adds that extra layer of transparency. So when you when you go out to do a story, I feel like talking about the, the good and evil uses of this, and maybe you might get some of that paranoia from your subjects that you're speaking to, but I, I feel like maybe the other part of it is they're so enamored by this thing that yeah. you have here. I want to put the little googly eyes on it because you wouldn't see it and <laughs> it'd be great for interviews. Um, I feel like they might also be drawn to it. Like, sure, yeah, I'll participate in maybe a story that I wouldn't have otherwise mm-hmm. because this is so cool and I want to be a part of it. Yeah. Do you get that when you I definitely, go out? 
you know, we have a limited time frame to do it, but I have used the cool factor of 360 to get sources because I said, well, look, this has never been done before, right? Or, you know, you can always say that, and that only works for so long. But I think, you know, it's about the size of a softball, yeah. and they're getting smaller. You know, and that the, we saw a giant leap from large over-the-shoulder Panasonic video cameras to DSLRs when it came to audiences wanting to speak with us. Uh, excuse me, uh, sources wanting to speak with us. And I think we're get hitting another leap as, you know, DSLRs went to iPhones. And now we're hitting another leap as we look at, this is, you know, it's six GoPros. And it takes a little bit of training with your sources. Um, I definitely have a bit of paranoia myself when I shoot with it. I think my sources will often want to clean up their offices a little bit more. And you know, we try to never shoot a 360 video in an office because it'd be so boring. But, you know, they're they're cognizant. I think we... We think that our sources aren't that on top of what we do as journalists. And I think that's, um, you know, <laughs> not that they know exactly what virtual reality is and augmented reality and that sort of stuff. But they understand that only clips of what they say are going to be used or, cl or clips of what you're seeing. So, I don't know. I think it, it allows this kind of level of trust that, you know, you might not have, you know, normally with sources or uh, definitely a level of uh, less intimidation, you know, than setting up two or three DSLRs and lights and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's. I think there will be a learning curve on that. I think there will be a point when people who it is in their best interest to control a message will suddenly, okay, well, we're not going to do the interview with that or exactly. are going to be incredibly guarded about what they're going to say. Yeah. So on the other hand with that is, I mean, if you end up do using that in those types of situations, then you get the impression, well, oh, okay, you know, that person – seems very guarded about what he's he or she is answering so maybe again it's the, the the great thing the great thing about the camera the camera has a very reductive aspect of exactly like, you know queuing in on human emotion and and connecting with and, and as it evolves i mean we are going to run into issues we're going to run into places like airports that say you can't film here because we don't want people to see you know back doors and ins and outs and all that kind of stuff we already experienced that at the grand coulee dam on this energy security piece because you know, they don't want people to see exactly what a corridor looks like or exactly what, uh, you know, the largest turbine in the world looks like. Um, so I, I think we are going to hit some limitations with that. But I think the way it's explained can definitely help, you know, can definitely help our sources, you know, understand what an experience of a story is like, but also help them understand that we're letting audiences kind of explore their space with them. Um, so that definitely makes makes it very exciting and makes you know makes storytelling and producing with it. But back to Nicole's point, it um, yeah, there's a little bit of paranoia with sources, and I think as they start to understand the technology, it will become less and less. Um, but I think they can also see the potential. They they see the cool factor. They're on Facebook. They understand that this technology exists, and and they usually want to be a part of it. Um, put a put a put a pin in Facebook because I want to circle back to that. But I did want to um you know, take us out of this paranoid aspect and actually talk about things where this can be a sort of a positive thing. You were telling me about something um, about a, a use of this in a hospital setting? Yeah. So, I, you know, there's a couple of really cool things we could do with this. One is there are experiences we can show that can help other people even train. Um, you know, imagine if you were, uh, I could never imagine myself in this scenario, but I'm a, a med school student. I'm about to walk into an operating room for the first time for an open heart surgery. You know, if I could see what that looks like and understand where the anesthesiologist stands next to the nurse anesthetist, next to the general surgeon, next to, you know, insert everybody else in an OR and understand kind of that that orchestra. Between, that environment. Yeah, that environment between the folks. If we can start to see how this could lower 
mistakes in in teaching hospitals. Um, you know, I think you can also take just the footage that you shoot, and wouldn't it be great to to have rooms in in children's hospitals where kids are getting chemo, and now every wall is projected, you know, in the scuba diving in the Great Barrier Reef. Um, there's a lot of positives you can do with this type of technology to bring people into different places, um, especially in times of need. We've already seen Southern Cal is doing some work with PTSD and veterans, which has been phenomenally helpful. And that's been all computer generated. Um, and they're describing their feelings and they're adding these elements in real time. So I think there's a lot of ways that we can use this to help coach people through difficult times. We can help um, you know, train people in, in settings that are, that are quite challenging, like an operating room. Um, and I, I think there's a lot of positives for how we can take this technology and, and just help people. Okay. We had a, um, before, the, before we turn on the mics, we had a, a little conversation about uh, Facebook and about video. And, and actually, my, my boss, uh, Lisa Wolf, was at ONA uh, a week ago. And she came back and she said that the thing that a lot of people were, that everybody was talking about was video. Suddenly, video, this is the... This is the medium with which we should be telling all our stories digitally. Mm -hmm. And so there's a there's an excitement about it. And there are a lot of things that are sort of pushing it. I mean, we, we had Meerkat and, and Periscope, but I think Facebook is Facebook Live has sort of leapfrogged almost. Yep. Oh, um, the great and, debate between Meerkat and, and Periscope. Yeah, I isn't remember, that so quaint? I remember that. that was so I remember quaint. that five week debate. That, um, that was so quaint. But now I don't I don't hear anybody really talking about Periscope, no. but I think people are still using it. Definitely. But Facebook Live is something that people have just like gravitated yeah, towards. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, one, we, we are at the point now that technology exists to do Live 360. Um, CNN tried it during one of the debates last fall and they some some technical errors, but we're, we're at the point where we can live stream 360. Um, so I get really frustrated. I read articles on Pointer and ONA newsletters and press releases from every major news organization that says we're video centric. We're going to link all of our newsroom across the country with video. We've hired these people from these big production, but they don't talk about how they've hired great video storytellers. No. And we're just going to give a camera to our, yeah. our reporter. Who's and don't get me wrong. The reporters do a phenomenal job writing. And that is the job of an editor of a newsroom to decide how many writers and photographers and videographers they should have in the newsroom. And I understand there's a lot of limitations from an HR standpoint and a financial standpoint. You know, it's you're not going to fire all your writers because video is the cool thing this month. But <laughs> some newsrooms will. Some newsrooms <laughs> will, sadly. <laughs> oh, geez. I'm talking to you, Tribune Company. Um, but what drives me crazy is we don't talk about how we've tried to bring on great video storytellers. We talk about how we're trying to link all of our newsrooms together and share as much video as possible and use machine learning and a trunk promo video and what what is frustrating is if, yes, video is the future of storytelling, but it's a part of the future of storytelling. You know, we still read more than we ever have before. It's just in different chunks. So I think the 360 has the potential to also have that effect. Oh, my gosh, every newsroom now needs to have a has, have virtual reality desk and have a virtual reality team. And and now we're going to give all of our reporters thetas and they should be running around protests with thetas and you know, if your job is to tell a great story, do it in the best way that you can to tell the story in the best way that's appropriate, you know, for your audience. So, yes, Facebook Live is amazing. And I think it's, it's providing a, a window into our newsroom that we never really did before. Everything from bringing it into news editorial meetings to answering questions about debates. I think bots are going to start doing that even even more so. If you can take the collective knowledge of the Washington Post company and have a bot answer questions based off of the articles that they write. That's phenomenal. That's a great interaction between between our audiences. But 
I, while I think Facebook Live is wonderful and I think video is wonderful, especially on uh, Facebook as a network, I think we also just have to remember that it's we should devote resources to it. We should do it. But we often fail to measure the successes of our projects just after the basic analytics, the clicks, hits, impressions, and shares. You know, I would love for a newsroom to say, oh, you know, we're hiring a statistician. And that statistician's job is to poll our audience and say, do you understand the top three positions of policy of Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump? Or do you understand, you know, what three main factors happen because of climate change? Because we did all of these articles on all of these topics. And it, when the audience starts to understand the facts that we're giving them, I consider that a success. And I, I often say this with a lot of clients in the nonprofit space, you know, when people are trying to convince, you know, equal rights for marriage, well, you have to have nine Supreme Court justices hear your story, eight now, um, not 200 million people in the United States. It helps. Having a movement totally helps. But if you can start to understand your audience more specifically for your stories, I think that's where we get into the really valuable aspects of video and, and live is to make sure our audiences can understand what we're saying. And I don't think we're doing enough measuring of understanding that story. I think we're just trying to find the most efficient, compact you know, vehicle to deliver that in. And right now, video is definitely that. You can see more, you can hear more, you can experience more, you can cram more into a standard video. But are we remembering it, I think, is the big it, question. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing what's happening on, on Facebook Live. You know, the, the types of things the New York Times is covering or, or putting up live just are not the types of things that 20 years ago you would think the New York Times would be paying attention yep. to. And not that that's bad. I think because it's on Facebook, I think there's a sense that we need to be talking about the things that well, obviously people are going to click on, but also the things that people are interested in. Mm -hmm. You know, there maybe they would be interested in somebody walking through a park and, you know, showing something in Paris that yeah. they've never seen before or going through a market in Hong Kong. I mean, maybe those things are interesting. But I wonder at what point does then that, that just kind of become sort of an ancillary part of their journalism. It's not really the main thrust of it. So then it's like, well, what's the long term for this? I mean, certainly we can look at the stuff and see, you know, oh, yeah, it's generating a lot of traffic. A lot of people are looking at it. But, you know, if they don't click in, I, I think, you know, and, and I really, really agree with, with you about the statisticians and understanding data. I don't think that any newsroom is doing enough with data mm -hmm. and actually looking at the information that's available to us about who their audience is, what they're clicking on, why they're clicking on it, exactly. and, and what experience they have. Because I think that informs us as journalists as to what we should be focusing on. If, if we create this great video of, you know, like this walking around Washington, D.C., but we don't really inform them of what's, like, going, issue, on. what's yeah. going on, then uh, again, it's just travelogue. It's not really anything of depth. Yeah. You're not really impacting people. Well, and You're the just journalists were historically scared of math. Uh, I can say that <sighs> as a journalist. Yep. And, and I'm sure if we pulled every journalist in the country, what's the difference between a percentage and a percentage point? That would be tough. <laughs> and, you know, I think I agree, obviously, with, with the data points on that. And um, there's a, a professor and good friend of mine, Norm Lewis, at the University of Florida, who teaches this really cool news and numbers class and really hones in on these really basic math principles that we should understand as journalists. But, you know, I think the Facebook Live part is great. If the New York Times travel section has their own Facebook page and they want to do a live video every twice a day from a different part of the world, that's awesome. And, and I think that's great. We also have to remember that Facebook is artificially inflating a lot of these news organizations by paying them to do live videos. So, you know, in that sense, yeah, our, our editorial standards have changed because 
Facebook is paying us to do a live video because it promotes the platform. So it's a yeah. platform. It's not. A, it's not a media company. Remember exactly. That? Yeah. Yeah. It's not a media company. Um, That's what they keep telling. They us. keep telling us. So you know, I have no pro- and I have no problem with Facebook paying news organizations through the platform. There needs to be a more fluid there relationship. Needs to be content. Yeah, there needs to be a more fluid relationship with the content between the distribution networks and and the news organizations. And I think you know, Facebook Live does allow that extra window. And you know, but it also allows just. I mean, I did this. I was driving the Pacific Coast Highway yeah, the other week, I, I and saw I did that. a live great. video because I I just put a little tripod, little Joby tripod, on my dashboard, and you know it was right in front of me, and I was just going, and I'd see a pop up, and I'd say hello to a friend, and I keep driving, and you know it's just kind of one of those audiences love it because it's allowing that real time connection between you and someone else, and when Mark Zuckerberg is playing ping pong, you know, with someone across the world on an Oculus headset in real time. I think we see that as a game, like we've seen virtual reality, what we really need to understand is, you know, live video is a way for you to to be there with someone. And I think live 360 is going to be another step in that direction. Yeah, yeah. I think um, Facebook Live works for a lot of different reasons. Not not only the, the fact that it's visually interesting, but, you know, it's content where people are. We know people are on Facebook. They're all over social media. So you're actually providing them something interesting in the space that they already are. So, of course, it's going to be successful. Um, but so I think we're really only sort of exploring the tip of it at this point. This is, you know, we suddenly we've got this great content. This is a space where people are at. Isn't this great that we're able to do that? But I don't think we've gotten to the point yet where we're, okay, well, let's start doing something of value, of weight, that may actually have. And, and one wonders if when we think about how people, you know, unfriend your high school friend who who suddenly has a, a, a very vocal political stance that's very different than yours, how quickly that's never happened. how quickly we start seeing, you know, things with more weight, things with more opinion or different yeah. type of scope that's different than you. It's like, oh, I'm going to block the New York Times because I don't I don't want to hear this. I'm going to block this outlet because I don't want to hear this. Uh, it'll be interesting to see when, when that ever sort of yeah, happens. I think it's got a progression. Scott Montgomery, the, the head of digital at NPR, has a great – he was explaining how they, they treat Twitter. And uh, he said, we treat Twitter as another show. You know, we've got all things considered. We've got Morning Edition, we, and, and Twitter is its own show. And I think it really – it kind of opened my eyes to we're using, you know, social media right now as, as basically just, uh, you know – as as awful, you know, basically just a receptacle for our stories. Oh, throw it to Facebook, throw yeah. it to Twitter, throw it to this. And it's just kind of these, this, you know, it's like crumpling up the story and throw it in a trash can and someone's going through your trash. And, you know, I'm not saying that the stories are trash, but it's just, it's all thrown in one big pile. And I think if we start to realize that the social networks are our own versions. It's it's like the metro section in the post. Right. And uh, I think now BuzzFeed runs like over 90 different Facebook pages. And Gawker, of course, ran numerous different Facebook pages. And it's funny how the, the media organizations are realizing this. And just this year, you've seen it. They're, they're diversifying their network on Facebook. The Weather Channel has, you know, a page called Rockets Are Cool. That's one of their – and I love it because all it is – is really cool videos of technology and SpaceX and science. And it's got, I mean, it launched earlier this year, and I think it's already got more than half a million, if not a million followers on it out of nowhere. Um, and it's funny to see the Weather Channel is an interesting digital company now. They've been building all of these separate different channels for the different interests. I, I just think that that way, if we start to think of these social networks as our channels of storytelling, you're going to start really honing in on your audience's interests a lot more.
Yeah, it's it's so cool because that's because you can you can equate that to things like apps. You can equate it to, equate it to all types of the way that we sort of segment the co the the copy the the content that we that we look out for on social media or whatever. That oh, I I don't like this type of thing, but I like this, and this is these are my favorite types of things. And so suddenly you're building a for lack of a better word a library mm -hmm. of of content that that's personalized to you. And, you know, I think that's the way we're kind of consuming things now. It's not so much the big broad. Here's a newspaper that has a sports section, a TV section, a, a news and an opinion and, and living section. Here are the elements that you've chosen because they're the things that you're, you're interested in. It's back yeah. to the, you know, the DVR model. You're gonna, yeah, I'm, 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 going off into, I'm going off into the field <laughs> no, here. No, it's all good. It's, it's, you all... Know, it's, it's why email curated lists are still really popular. Look exactly. Brian Stetler's, you know, uh, you know, morning of the CNN money that he sends out about, about news and media. So it's, it's interesting. It's, you know, it's, I would say now, as always, and I say this again over and over, it's the most exciting time to be in journalism. It's the yeah. most exciting time to tell stories, whether that's for a news organization, a nonprofit, an NGO. You know, we've diversified the ways we can tell stories, who we can tell stories from, the fiscal side of it, who can pay for the stories that we tell. And I think we're starting to really get into some some technologies that, that our audiences are going to respond to. And I think it takes a leap of faith. You know, I, I give great credit to the Weather Channel for calling me back in February and said, hey, let's do these. I had no experience in it. I had, you know, I've done one or two clips before and I said, hey, I've got an idea. I want to take a climate scientist into an ice cave and talk about how... Uh, glaciers melt from the inside out and they said let's do it and for them to take a risk uh, you know specifically Adicio Martinez this crazy editor he's now at, he's now at Upworthy to say let's do six months of great storytelling and just try it all over the place and you know we got the first 360 video of the Northern Lights we did Fort McMurray wildfires and uh, you know scuba diving in coral reefs with the Smithsonian in Panama and you know yeah it took some money but we completely changed the way we see storytelling. We trained the staff on it, and now we're ready to take that leap into the next, you know, next big technology of storytelling. And I wish more news organizations would start to devote a little bit of resources towards R and D. Uh, they don't have to create a whole lab like the New York Times did, but just say, you know what, we're going to set aside twenty thousand dollars a year. Small newspaper could do, could do that, and say we're going to set aside twenty thousand dollars and just try something new, just a moonshot project. And you never know what you can find and just me personally put my all my chips in this, uh, you know, as, a, as running my own company, I invested way too much money in GoPros <laughs> than I ever thought I would. And it's it's paid off. I mean, it's really allowed me to, to travel the world this year and, and try to really experiment on a new type of storytelling. I wish that sense of fear and excitement and experimentation would start to permeate more more news organizations instead of a press release that's filled with a bunch of rhetoric about how we're going to, you know, revolutionize storytelling by linking all of our journalists together through a server. You know, that hurts. <laughs> Show, don't tell. Exactly. I guess that we can, we, can, we can take it down to that. Steve, thanks for coming in. This has been thanks great. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. This is, as you said, exciting times. It's going to be it's going to be an interesting next year, to say the least. You got to lose what we'll talk about six months from now. So yeah. next time on It's All Journalism. Well, they're coming into an environment where the landscape is completely different than what it used to be. Now, that doesn't affect them in terms of, oh, well, it used to be like this, but it affects them, it affects them in terms of the older journalists not having the time or the inclination to really acclimate these young people into an environment of, let's produce journalism like this. This is the quality of journalism we produce here at this paper. And so they come in uh, with skills, multimedia and social media skills, which is great, However, when you start talking about what are the norms and expectations of what we're trying to do each day, 
that has become a little more murky than it used to be in the past because the culture has been shattered to a large degree. The number of people you took out of that newsroom and the generational knowledge you have taken from that newsroom has had, had an unbelievable impact on, on what is being produced now at these newspapers. In our next podcast, we talked to Scott Reinardi, a University of Kansas journalism professor about journalism's lost generation. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about digital media. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Podcast One. This week's episode was edited by Nicola Grisco. Amber Healy provided our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music, and I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Hey, you've written a book. You can order copies of Turn Up the Volume, a down and dirty guide to podcasting on our website. Visit itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page. Isn't it time you started your podcast? Do you like the work that we're doing here at It's All Journalism? Now you can show your support on our Patreon page. Follow the link at the top of our website and donate. For as little as a dollar a month, you can access exclusive content and receive updates about upcoming episodes. Donate a little bit more and we'll send you a cool swag like our It's All Journalism mug or a signed copy of my podcasting book. There are even opportunities for you to submit ideas for future shows or even appear on an episode. Go to itsalljournalism.com and click on the Patreon link to find out more. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.